Welcome to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Today's show is Port Authority, Race, Labor, and Logistics on the Docks. And my guest is Peter Cole, author of Dock Worker Power, Race and Activism in Durban and the San Francisco Bay Area, published by the University of Illinois Press. Our opening song is by the Buddy Colette Big Band, recorded in 1996 at the Lincoln Theater in Washington, D.C. This is Jazz by the Bay. In 1953, a full year before the Supreme Court's Brown v. Board of Education decision, Buddy Collette and other California musicians helped end the separate but equal practices of the American Federation of Musicians in Los Angeles. Collette was instrumental in the amalgamation of two Los Angeles unions, Local 47, the white branch with 15,000 members, and Local 767, the black branch with 800 members. Though successful, most work in Hollywood was still very hard to come by for black musicians, with Colette a notable exception. Buddy Colette will bookend today's show, and in between we'll hear three iconic South African jazz songs that became anthems in the struggle against apartheid. Dock workers have power. Workers in the world's ports can harness their role at a strategic choke point to promote their labor rights and social justice causes. Peter Cole brings such experiences to light in a comparative study of Durban, South Africa, and the San Francisco Bay Area, California. Cole's research reveals how unions affected lasting change in some of the most far-reaching struggles of modern times. Important aspects of the labor struggle were shared by both groups, First, dock workers in each city drew on long-standing radical traditions to promote racial equality. Second, they persevered when a new technology, container ships, sent a shockwave of layoffs through the industry. Finally, their commitment to black internationalism and leftist politics sparked transnational work stoppages to protest apartheid and authoritarianism. Cole brings to light surprising parallels in the experiences of dock workers half a world away from each other, and offers a new perspective on how workers can change their conditions and world. Peter Cole is a professor of history at Western Illinois University and a research associate in the Society, Work, and Development Institute at the University of Witterwaterstrand in Johannesburg. Along with dock worker power, he's the author of Wobblies on the Waterfront, Interracial Unionism in Progressive Era Philadelphia. And now, Port Authority with Peter Cole on Interchange on WFHB. Peter Cole, welcome back to Interchange. Thanks. It's a pleasure to be back on your show. Now, you and I spoke, I think, at the beginning of 2017 uh, on a program called Authoritarian Creep, uh, of course, referring to Trump and the rise of nationalism and white supremacy as mainstream elements of our political discourse. And here we are still better, worse, hopeless. (laughs) (laughs) What do you think? Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> okay. Like, uh, you know, um, I think it depends on where you look. Yeah. Like, I mean, do I focus on the fact that there are, um, for instance, um, 
groups of Americans, white Americans, who are part of organizations that are committed to maintaining white supremacy, that is true. Um, do I look actually at the creation of a new museum in Montgomery, Alabama to um, honor the people who are victims of lynching and the fact that statues in parks named after Nathan Fredford Forrest in, in Memphis or Robert E. Lee in New Orleans are coming down or that Ida B. Wells is being honored in Chicago, um, you know, the first black person in the loop to have a, na a street named after her. Um, both are happening. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, I think uh, the good historian answer is that we need more time to see, like, essentially which trend, if you will, is will become the more dominant one. It either is possible. Hmm. Uh, so, uh, Peter, you wrote in uh, a Jacobin or I guess the, um, you spoke or emailed in a Jacobin interview uh, that you came to appreciate what some others already knew, that there are a shocking number of similarities between South Africa and the United, excuse me, the United States. And that's something that you're, we're going to talk about today, some of those similarities uh, and, and how shocking they are, I suppose. Um, uh, but you, uh, you undertake in this book, Doc Worker Power, what you call a comparative study. What is a comparative study and why is it important to do comparative studies? Yeah, well, that's an important question. And so, most historians um, uh, often study a single place, a single case study, and then the question is, okay, so what if you're not interested in that particular thing, that person or that place or those group of people? Why should I care, right? Um, well, the answer might be we're trying to derive some sort of truth, not just to sort of acknowledge these humans and this, these events. And so if you start to com use comparative techniques, and this is not unique to history as a f discipline, you might be able to actually draw out some larger truths. Hmm. Um, because it's not just an instance where this happened. What happens if it's two cases? What happens if it's five? Can we draw, therefore, some larger conclusions? Maybe. Um, and so doing comparative work, which uh, many fields of uh, inquiry in the world, like social scientists, often do comparative studies. Um, historians really don't. Um, partially because it's a lot of work, uh, the way that historians work, um, to go deep, right? Like, uh, but um, nevertheless, comparative work can be incredibly enriching and meaningful, but, you know, it can actually, so if, but if in fact it's in two different places that are maybe seemingly different, but actually are close enough in common that they're valid comparisons, then maybe we've in fact found something out more meaningful, right? Um, we've, maybe we've uncovered a bit more truth. Well, that's a, a good way to walk into your book, obviously. Uh, so tell us uh, what the book is about. Uh, what made you want to specifically uh, talk about this history? Uh, I was first interested in um, the San Francisco Barrett dock workers and the union that they have been in for the last 80 years or so. Um, and as a result of my earlier research, which was surprisingly enough on dock workers. Um, <laughs> and so I had come to learn that this union on the West Coast um, whose headquarter and for many decades most important and largest port was the Bay Area, um, have this amazing history, amazing in my opinion, um, of inc being incredibly progressive, um, anti-racist, um, super egalitarian, um, and uh, overtly socialistic in a number of their policies, um, as well as um, some other aspects of this union. And so I was very interested in them, not sure I wanted to do with them, but I also was interested in changing my own field of study to not limit myself to the United States because you know, nation states as fields of study are actually sort of arbitrary, right? Like these boundaries exist and so therefore everything that I'm supposed to study is within the confines inside this place, even though that's not the way the world works. Human beings, 
information, ideas, as well as trade goods that we, uh, you know, raw materials and finished products cross boundaries all the time. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. Peter Cole is our guest. He's the author of Dock Worker Power, Race and Activism in Durban and the San Francisco Bay Area, published by the University of Illinois Press. His research shows how logistics proves no nation is an island when it comes to racism and capitalism. For me, I was very consciously trying to go beyond a straight-up U.S. study because that is not the way things are, mm. uh, nor were. And especially, of course, if you are interested in things like trade, the global economy, shipping, I mean, by definition almost, right? Like, and so why would you try to tell that story? In fact, my first book is a study of Philadelphia dock workers. And although there's international aspects to it, it's largely focused on Philadelphia. And I came to believe that I could write, in fact, uh, a different book on a similar but different group of people that would have a totally different focus. And to me, that was exciting, but also actually important to do because, well, the world is changing, right? And uh, academics and historians are often sort of catching up um, historians are sort of famously looking backward. And in addition to that, um, I was very much interested in looking at how unions or more generally workers when they're organized together, um, not always in the form of union, um, have power, like in the book title, but not only to help themselves, but also actually to help um, promote causes that they and I believe are worth fighting. For instance, the fight for racial equality in the United States, the fight for racial equality in South Africa, and so on. And so actually the first main focus of my book is on how these groups of workers in both Durban, a port in South Africa, and San Francisco have long histories of using their workplace power, not just to say make more money, although that, nothing's wrong with that, um, but actually also to fight for racial equality, which is largely unknown and I'd say quite important. The two, obviously, the two ports you're talking about, San Francisco, uh, Oakland, and mm-hmm. Durban, South Africa, and these are two um, large ports, vital ports, and you're you're looking at ways that these uh, operate in similar ways significantly, right? And you point their racial I- issues in particular, the way that worker power uh, or, you know, the ability of a, a union and the ability of workers in general to deal with, um, I guess, stoppages took uh, took sort of uh, action against uh, other social ills, in, in a sense. The power of workers is, is ultimately the power to stop work, um, what we call a strike. Um, and a lot of people don't know that the origins of that term is, is maritime. It was in 1768 in London, England, then the biggest port in the world, where sailors who wanted to raise took down the sails of their ships uh, uh, in order to press the boss to give them a raise. And the nautical term for taking down the sail of a ship is to strike a sail. Mm. And so that becomes synonymous with all work stoppages ever since, right? And that tells us a lot about the centrality of not just trade, but shipping to the entire global economy for centuries, right? Um, Mm -hmm. And so why do I study this industry? I'm interested, the second word in my title, power, right? Like uh, what, who's got it, how they get it, how to, you know, and how essentially that more people can have more of it, right? Um, mm-hmm. And so the strike is actually the single best tactic that workers have. I'm, though, interested especially in where could a strike be most effective. And 
In fact, the industry of transportation, which sometimes is also called logistics or supply chain, um, some workers, in fact, have more power inherently than others, and um, not just dock workers, but workers throughout the transportation industry. Right? And so I was drawn to these these types of workers and these types, this industry for those sorts of reasons. So why why these two ports? Is it just because they're so similar? You mentioned Philadelphia before. Did Philadelphia not have any of these kinds of issues going on as well? Why these two ports? Why these two specific ports? I mean, I was interested in doing a comparative study. I was interested in U.S. South Africa because, in fact, um, they share enough in common, but they're actually, to many people, sort of not obviously comparable um, they also are ones in the, the so-called global north and ones in the global south, um, and very few people have even attempted to write such a, uh, a book, right? And so it was uh, the challenge is somewhat attractive. Um, but uh, and then I was interested in the San Francisco Bay Area for reasons I already mentioned, especially these dock workers who have this um, unusual, long, and in my opinion, um, impressive history of being progressive and militant. Um, and then, okay, so I already have got that. Where am I going to look for a comparison? Well, if you start to study or spend time in South Africa, um, uh, past and present, then you'll quickly realize there is only a few significant port cities. Durban is the biggest and most important port for 100 years and counting in South Africa, mm. and also has a long history of militancy, even though there are significant differences between these two cities and these two workforces, um, which I also want to not ignore. Um, but uh, so I was drawn to this. Um, without a doubt, like it's super random on its face. Why San Francisco and Durban? Why didn't I study Los Angeles and Rotterdam? Why didn't I study Tokyo and Sydney? Right. I mean, you could endlessly ask the question, uh, <laughs> but like I was trying, um, I guess I'm trying to explain why I ended up at these two. But like you could do any number of good ones. Um, but like I didn't want to study L.A., for instance, because San Francisco actually has up until the 70s was far more important as a port. Um, but also because that was, in fact, the sort of the center of this union and their radicalism, mm. which is one of the themes I was exploring. time for a break. This is Yakal Nkomo, which means The Bellowing Bull, by Winston Mankuku Ngozi, from the 1968 album of the same name. In a 2003 interview, Mankuku said, Things were tough then. You had to have a pass. You got thrown out. The police would stop you, you know? I was about 22. I threw my pass away. I wouldn't carry it. I was always being arrested, and a lot of my friends and I thought it was so tough for black people, and put that into the song. So it was The Bellowing Bull for the black man's pain. Stay with us on Interchange.
Welcome back to Interchange on WFHB. We're talking to Peter Cole about racism and anti-racism in dock worker unions in the San Francisco Bay Area and the parallels found on the docks in Durban, South Africa. Well, so radicalism, unionism, uh, work, work stoppages, strikes, uh, um, integration, uh, all these things are important. You know, uh, on this show, we've talked many times about the difficulties of trying to make unions this this perfect thing when frequently they're very racist things themselves. And so it's an interesting part of this this particular um, union, uh, the ways in which it integrates, the ways in which uh, it sort of shifts uh, in its its own makeup from from white to black in a lot of ways, right? So, well, well, tell us a little bit about the, that that union. This is the International Longshore and Warehouse Union, uh, mm-hmm. correct? Uh, give us a broad overview of that uh, that union, its role, and and why it is unique. So. Um, in the 1930s, a time of the Great Depression, but also a lot of worker militancy um, in San Francisco, then the biggest port and um, probably the most important city on the West Coast and in the West, and in every other port up and down um, the entire Pacific Coast, dock workers went on strike um, in what became known as the Big Strike in the summer of 1934. Um, there were many strikes in many industries in many parts of the country in that era. Um, and uh, this strike, um, be, proved to be very successful. Um, ultimately, after several months, um, workers um, uh, sort of on strike shut down the West Coast ports, which is uh, central to the American economy. Right um, after several months, uh, essentially the city of San Francisco, collaborating with the police um, and employers, try to break the strike through force, kill several workers in what becomes known as Bloody Thursday. In the aftermath of Bloody Thursday. Um, workers across the entire city of San Francisco went on strike in what's called the San Francisco General Strike. Very, very unusual in the history of the U.S. or other countries when an entire city's workers shut down across industries in solidarity with each other. Right. Um, and in the aftermath of the San Francisco General Strike, um, essentially the President Franklin D. Roosevelt's administration and its his Secretary of Labor, Frances Perkins, the first woman to be a cabinet member, pressed basically the employers and ultimately. Um, wages are raised, um, a union is recognized, um, the cha- there are sort of massive changes to the hiring system and the creation of union-controlled hiring halls, um, and more. And within a few years then, not quite then, comes the International Longshore Men's and Warehouse Men's Union, ILWU. In the 1990s, they degendered their name, but it was uh, originally Longshore Men and Warehouse Men. Also worthy of note is um, out of that big strike came a leader that becomes a legend on the waterfront and also a well-known, literally a household name in the U.S. through the 50s, a man named Harry Bridges, who was an Australian immigrant who had moved to the U.S. in the early 1920s after being a sailor um, and having already become radicalized. He actually joins the IWW in New Orleans um, and later moves back to San Francisco. And although he wasn't the leader of the strike at the beginning, um, he became the leader by the end um, and then becomes the president of the ILWU. And um, Harry, as he's just referred to by most people, um, is really um, in many people's uh, minds synonymous with the ILWU. Um, My book is actually not a biography of Harry Bridges. Um, He's a central character. Um, But I wanted to decenter Bridges um, because what has been written about the LW often, in my opinion, focuses uh, too much on Bridges. 
Um, and so I, by contrast, was trying to look at how Local 10, which was the San Francisco Bay Area local, which he came out of, um, was, uh, and many of its activists are sort of pushing the union, um, although they do have, on some issues, support from the top, from here. <clears throat> yeah. Why is the ILWU so radical? Yeah. Well, there's multiple reasons. I, there's actually a long history around the world of dock workers being more likely than most workers to collectively act, hmm. to strike and or unionize, um, and also to be more internationally minded because, again, the nature of the industry, many, of course, pe- workers are from different places, but every day you're meeting people who are coming off the ships who are from India, who are from Germany, who are from Chile. You're moving cargo from the Philippines and from Britain, right? And so even though the typical traditionally dock worker was didn't have a high level of formal education, they were actually super knowledgeable about the world, um, very worldly, very sometimes called cosmopolitan, but also uh, more likely than most to be international in their thinking and um, often seeing capitalism as an international system, understandably so. And as many workers uh, and the poor, very critical of capitalism. Yeah, um, And so it's not unique to the San Francisco area that uh, you have a overtly left-wing union because Harry, often accused of being a communist, although he denied it, but he was very much on the left and he was far from alone. And so it wasn't just the leader pulling the rank and file leftward. Arguably, um, Harry was being pushed as much as he was being pulled. There were many, not all, everybody in the union was a lefty, but a great many were communists, socialists, wobblies, Trotskyists, and other. Um, and that is a central part of the story because that sort of radicalism also results in this union making a choice to be anti-racist because, as you noted previously, um, many unions historically, and even some today, are racist. Um, and so there's no, you shouldn't assume that unions are um, bastions of radical racial equality. That's not true. Um, some unions have been, not only the LW, but the LW was one of a handful of unions because of their left-wing political orientation that were much more committed to racial equality than most other institutions in the USA. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Our guest is Peter Cole, author of Dock Worker Power, a comparative study of race and activism in San Francisco and Durban, South Africa, two essential locations where a commitment to black internationalism and leftist politics sparked transnational work stoppages to protest apartheid and authoritarianism. So you talk about work stoppages. So is there a distinct difference about uh, you know how this comes about in a port city in the U.S. like San Francisco and Oakland, and a port city in South Africa in Durban? What's what's the sort of modus operandi of of how workers stop what they're doing? Yeah, well, that's a key question. It depends on the time. So like um, during much of the 20th century, um, from World War II onward, essentially after World War II. Um, South Africa's racial system was called apartheid, um, which is an Afrikaans word. Afrikaans is a sort of a derivation of Dutch um, because many of the European colonial settlers were originally Dutch. So Afrikaans, the word apartheid, which means apartness or separateness, um, which is a neutral sort of term in a way, but really was like Jim Crow segregation on steroids. Um, Far, far worse um, in many ways, measurable and other uh, for the 80% of South Africans who were non-white um, and very much also modeled on German Nuremberg laws as well as for that matter American segregationist laws in the South. 
Um, and so black workers didn't have the right to be in unions. Black workers and all the dock workers in Durban were black. Um, black workers didn't have the legal right to strike. White workers did. So how do you therefore strike if you don't have the right to strike? Well, um, up until 1959, Durban dockers and other dock workers across South African ports were what was called casual labor. That means you're hired by the day, by the ship, by the shift. Um, you don't have a job tomorrow necessarily. You have to report at the ship or the place of hiring in order to maybe get a job. And so if one person doesn't report for work one day because they want to take the day off, well, that's legal. They don't have a job. Um, if everyone who's a dock worker, say 3,000, um, simultaneously and not coincidentally don't report for a hire, you have, by all intents and purposes, a strike. And so black workers in the port of Durban very cleverly, they were not the only ones who did this, um, but they repeatedly um, in the 30s, 40s, and 50s um, basically collectively report not didn't report for work and often uh, accompanied by demand for, say, like, we want more money. Um, and so these so-called stayaways, which was a term used in South Africa in the 1950s um, during the anti-apartheid movement, um, essentially are everything but in name a strike, mm -hmm. um, but didn't violate the law because they didn't have a job, right? And so um, dock workers, just like in every other port, have common interests. They work together. They work in gangs. And so they often sort of come to identify with each other. In the case of Durban and other South African cities, black workers um, were generally forced to live in what were called hostels, which were single-sex housing, where um, only if you had a job with a white employer could you even move to a city from the rural areas. And so Durban dockers lived together in these hostels. Um, they were also restricted in what they could do off of work time um, because of racism, apartheid. And so they would socialize together at what were the so-called African beer halls, one of the few things they could do in their free time. And so you work together, you live together, you drink together. You also are generally of the same ethnic group. You suffer common racial as well as workplace oppression. It's really not surprising that they saw each other as a collective force and then occasionally use that, right, for, you know, short-term immediate gain, like we need more money, never enough, um, but give us some more. Um, but also, by the late 1950s, in coordination with anti-apartheid groups, including most famously the African National Congress, as well as something called the South African Congress of Trade Unions, so that they were timing their stayaways, not just um, together, but actually in conjunction with other black workers in other industries and cities. Um, and so um, were these strikes political in nature? One could debate it. I always say that any example of black worker power or black power is a threat to the apartheid regime, and that's widely understood. Um, so even a strike for a raise is actually a political threat. Um, uh, I was, uh, but it was very clear, even more so, when they were timing their actions with other groups of black people um, in other industries, right, um, in conjunction with the ANC and SACTU, um, so that it's impossible, I would say, to misinterpret by the late 50s how they're acting. Hmm. Um, in other countries in Africa, they are also still colonies, right? Um, and so in many places in, say, Kenya, in Mombasa, the big port, or in West Africa, transportation workers, railroad and harbor workers, are also doing similar things to fight for um, in independence. It's time for another break. This is Manenberg by Abdullah Ibrahim, formerly known as Dollar Brand. From the 1974 album, Manenberg is where it's happening. 
With this album, Ibrahim captured lightning in a bottle, inadvertently creating an unofficial anthem for the youth uprisings that would occur just a few years later. Basil Kotzi's tenor solo was so extraordinary and influential that he began to go by the nickname Manenberg. Stay with us for more Dock Worker Power when Interchange returns on WFHB. back to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Our show is Port Authority, Race, Labor, and Logistics on the Docks, specifically the docks in San Francisco and Durban, South Africa. In this segment, Peter Cole talks about the civil rights parallels between the U.S. and apartheid South Africa, where similar tactics to defeat racism develop in different places. So how how is it that um, that this parallels the kind of civil rights uh, push in the United States? Uh, this is obviously uh, an apartheid system, and it's still it's got a while to go there in uh, South Africa um, from the fifties forward. But it it is a, a beginning of this pushback against apartheid in the U.S. Civil rights um, demonstration demonstration civil rights uh, had also had a long history. Uh, itself before we sort of explode into the era we call the civil rights era. Uh, we often make the mistake of thinking these things happen at the point when there's some sort of resolution um, and that they have a long history of, of fighting as well. What's uh, what's the sort of parallel here? Is there is yeah. there a parallel between the two, the U.S. And, and South Africa? So there are clear parallels, but they weren't in conversation. And That's so, for instance, in 1952 in South Africa, there was this massive nationwide uh, movement called the Defiance Campaigns shortly after the creation of apartheid where thousands and thousands of people were intentionally broke the law, peaceful civil disobedience, nonviolent civil disobedience and were arrested. That sounds a lot like um, SNCC or students in 1960 in North Carolina engaging in nonviolent civil disobedience, right? Um, and that is true. But these guys weren't talking to each other at that time. It's just that sometimes, actually, similar tactics develop in different places, right? Um, and so it's not like they were entirely ignorant of each other, um, especially there's a long history of black Americans being in South Africa, going back to the late 19th century. Um, the Fist Jubilee Singers toured South Africa. Um, Marcus Garvey's Universal Negro Improvement Association 
by way of the USA was in South Africa and South Africans who traveled to study in the USA. Um, uh, the leader of the ANC in the, the, the 40s, a guy named Alfred Zuma, um, was in fact uh, had studied um, at Tuskegee, right? Like, uh, and he wasn't the only one, right? Like, so there's actually some connections. There are not connections in the 50s between Durban and San Francisco dock workers, um, although subsequently in recent years there have been. One of the themes of my book is really how workers in each of these two countries are part of their national um, movements for black equality. The ILWU within their union, but also they fight for better treatment of black people in the Bay Area and nationwide, lobbying the federal government, giving support for the Southern Freedom Movement, et cetera. Um, and also in Durban, where um, these worker actions are very much seen as part of the anti-apartheid movement. So uh, this is something that you call the civil rights unionism in, in the San Francisco area? That was a term um, used by a fellow historian named Bob Korstad to write about tobacco workers in North Carolina mm -hmm. in the 40s um, and 50s who were part of a, a communist-led union that was destroyed in which you had basically um, left-wing, often communist, white and black workers, along with uh, a number of black workers um, who were willing to work with left-wingers who often were ostracized by um, others, especially in the Cold War era due to the Red Scare, um, but who um, nevertheless appreciated that these black and white lefties were in fact um, willing to fight for equality, whereas many other white Americans weren't. Um, and so this is part of a longer history of um, left-wing Americans being more committed to racial equality, I would say, and that African Americans have often appreciated that. Um, and so, yeah, the term civil rights unionism, a union that fights for civil rights inside their structures, but also sort of beyond. Now, your focus is on Local 10 in particular when you talk about civil rights unionism. Is there a particular way that they were uh, pushing the, the envelope there? So, for instance, um, dock workers were um, integrated their ranks, and then during World War II, during the so-called Great Migration or Second Great Migration, the number of blacks in the Bay Area skyrocketed, and some of those guys ended up on the waterfront, right? Um, however, the sister local, you might say, or brother local of uh, the dock workers are the clerks. Um, they're the guys who basically keep the information, right? Um, the clerks union was remained all white hmm. um, into the early 1960s, and it was problematic because it was like, okay, here we've got this union that claims to be favor of equality, and local 10 is pretty good, but what about 34? Um, and so it was actually black and white activists within Local 10, with support from the International, um, led by Bridges, um, although at that time he also has an important lieutenant, a guy who comes out of Local 10 named Bill Chester, who's at the International, and the International headquarters were and remain in San Francisco, um, to push the clerks basically to open up their ranks in the early 60s to hire, uh, basically to um, open up the doors to hire uh, or to get black clerks, um, the union actually dispatches workers to the job, not employers. Employers literally call up the union for workers, right? Like, uh, and so if you're not in the union, you don't get a job, right? Like, uh, and so if you don't, if you don't have any black clerks, you can't dispatch any black clerks. Um, this is really important, even though it may seem obscure, because as one ages, what work, uh, manual labor gets harder. But you might be very experienced. Well, a lot of people who um, go into the clerks are former longshoremen, right? Mm. Um, and so all the blacks are going, we can't get into 34. Well, because of the activism at the local level and the international level, they pushed 
and basically busted open the doors in the early 60s um, so that blacks within the unit, because some other locals were more resistant than other locals. Hmm. Yeah, um, let me also note that this is before the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which orders all institutions to be open their ranks. Of course, there's resistance in any number of examples. Um, but so the union's doing this themselves. They're not being pushed from outside. They're actually pushing themselves, you might say. Wow. Um, this is Doug Storm on Interchange. Peter Cole is our guest, author of Dock Worker Power. We're talking about the way a simple metal box changed the face of the world. With containerization, the cost of transportation was massively reduced and forced changes in labor relations in untold ways. <laughs> Well, uh, let's shift gears. Uh, we're going to run short on time, Peter. Let's shift gears into containers uh, uh, because I think it is an essential part of the, the change of the world. You know, a new world order happens with containerization. Um, yes. So uh, tell us a little bit about how that changes the work on the dock and, and what the ILWU did to respond to it. Yes, of course. So when I started my project, I had no knowledge or interest in the subject of containerization, which is a term that immediately starts to put you to sleep. Right? <laughs> um, so who cares about this? But this seemingly simple metal box, not a seemingly sophisticated technology, literally changes the world, as you say. And there's a wonderful book by an economist named Mark Levinson called The Box, um, which explores this in depth. Um, but very few people actually have explored this um, massive change to the world economy that results in all sorts of changes to America and the world. For one, um, uh, essentially productivity skyrockets, which another way of saying that is the cost of shipping drastically decreases. And so if you reduce costs, that opens up all sorts of opportunities, you might say. So for instance, a company could move its production facilities from California or Illinois to, say, Mexico or China, and then move um, the finished products um, to in these containers, these standardized 20 and 40 foot metal boxes um, back across the world um, for a fraction of what it used to cost. Um, so much so that essentially you still have um, increased profit by reducing cost, right? And this has resulted in massive shifts in manufacturing, not just in the US, but from all the industrialized world to lower wage countries, right? Um, now you also need, of course, things like countries, governments to sign deals so that they facilitate these sorts of um, exchanges. Um, so it's not only because of containers, but containers are really a sort of a, often a forgotten aspect of why it is in, in the last 50 years that um, global trade has skyrocketed, right? Um, I um, learned uh, through the course of my research that literally the first union in the industry in the world to negotiate the transition to containers was the LWU, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so I call it world historic, which I try not to exaggerate, um, but what is, issue is more important to the world of workers in the 21st century than automation? And so this is an industry that automated and still is experiencing some new levels of automation um, in the 60s and 70s, right? Now, um, how did that happen? And so I explore in several chapters of my book how Harry Bridges, this notorious or glorious radical, um, uh, convinces his left-wing union members to basically go along with the transition instead of trying to resist it in some ways. So the IW in 1960 basically signs this contract that allows um, containers to move in without any resistance on the part of the workers. And Bridges prioritized the current generation of workers, not illogical. Um, so not a single worker was fired. 
Because when we think of technology in the workplace, we often think of, geez, there's going to be a lot of people get fired. Um, that's because that's the way it usually plays. Because this union was so strong, literally the employers had to uh, um, come to the table and ask, you might say, the workers to agree to this shift. Everyone knew this was going to result in fewer workers. But Bridges guaranteed that not a single worker would get laid off. How? Well, he basically got a bunch of money from the employers, a relatively large amount of money, what turned out over time to actually be not nearly as much money as they could have gotten, you might say, um, but nevertheless, and they um, bought out the older workers, right? And so they, what they called shrinking from the top. And so they got basically the oldest few thousand workers to do what they probably wanted to do anyway, which is stop work, right? <laughs> um, they also got more money for those who continue to work. So the other longshore workers got paid pretty well as blue collar workers, um, the wages of dock workers in the U.S. and other industrialized countries will be quite impressive from the 70s forward, right? So they took a lot of money, right? Now, you might say, why would a bunch of la radical left-wingers just take a bunch of money? Um, and you might say, what alternative was there? Um, I personally believe that they couldn't have prevented containers from moving forward. The question is always how, not if. And in my opinion, um, bridges could have pushed harder to ensure more workers over time would retain their jobs as opposed to decrease through attrition um, by sharing the work, by reducing the amount of hours worked. Hmm. Let me just say in contrast, Durbin, black workers didn't have a union because they weren't allowed to yet in the 70s. And so when containers moved forward in Durbin, within three years, 50% of the workers were fired. And those who continued to work didn't receive an extra penny. And those who were fired didn't get anything, right? And so the contrast in this case, as opposed to a similarity, is that Having a strong union drastically benefited those who were in the union, and not having one resulted in these workers um, really suffering all of the, the loss. Uh, same industry, same technology, drastically different outcomes. <laughs> It's time for our final break. This is Stimela, The Coal Train, by Hugh Masekela, off the 1974 album I'm Not Afraid. Written in 1971, Stimela reminds everyone that South Africa's wealth and infrastructure was built on the back of labor from all over Africa. They were the force that modernized the country. All the darkness, homesickness, and anger about the evils of apartheid were translated into one of the great anthems in the South African songbook. Stay with us on Interchange. Let's 
Welcome back to Interchange on WFHB. In our final segment with author and historian Peter Cole, we'll learn about Steady Men, another concession made by the ILWU that weakened solidarity and consequently their power. Then we'll turn to Cole's role in the CRR 19, the Chicago Race Riot of 1919 commemorative project. It's a question about, you know, the capitalist uh, grind in the first place, right? Uh, to imagine that this kind of labor um, goes away and then people become uh, surplus, I suppose, uh, not useful anymore as well. And then how we treat each other in society, you know, sort of falls by the wayside as well. Well, someone else will have to take care of that labor force. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, logic of capitalism. Yeah, yeah, it's it's pretty awful. So, um, the union could potentially ensure more winners. Yeah. And the LWU did a relatively good job. Mm. Uh, if you're asking, uh, if as I was trying to do, like what else could have happened? Right. Um, because not only did they introduce containers, um, the West Coast Shipping Association, in their second tech contract in 1966, insisted on so-called steady men, in which rather than the union dispatching its own members from the hall, and it rotated them in order to ensure a quality of opportunity. Instead. If you had certain certifications that the employers insisted upon, they would have so-called steady men who would directly report to their boss every day, every, the same peer every day for months on end. And rather than having unity with the members, you now uh, potentially are more loyal to the boss and some people start making a lot more money than others within the union. Right. And so you didn't have to have steady men. Right. Um, the employers insisted upon it. The union agreed to it. Bridges agreed to it. And honestly, um, I think the employers got bridges sort of good on this one because the employers were saying, well, this is fancy technology. We need special people. But the truth is, is that if you can learn to drive a car, you can drive a crane. Right. Um, and so the employers claimed that they needed these steady men. But really, this was a wedge um, and that weakens the union. It weakens the unity, the solidarity of members. And this is not my critique. This is actually you know, I researched this, right? Like, uh, there was a lot of debates during and after this time within the union about um, the so-called steady men issue, which seems like is in the weeds, but actually is really important to understand what happens subsequently. Mm -hmm. I don't think it, it seems analogous with generally the, the insider who sort of... Uh, uh, is not loyal to to the the workforce, but loyal to the paycheck or loyal to the self, perhaps. The one thing that that strikes me as interesting here, generally, is that you know we're talking about labor, we're talking about people who are employed, you know, who are uh, sort of existing in a part particular contract of labor. Uh, but we've also talked about the the ways in which uh, logistics are both ubiquitous. Um, overwhelming in many ways and uh, often hidden uh, transportation of commodities are hidden but it is the single probably single weakest point right uh, in terms of how capitalism operates now being so tied into how these things move around the globe um, is there less um, power in the workforce but is the opportunity to stop the flow of goods and change sort of 
the market economy or the economies of these large global uh, capitalist institutions, those particular vulnerabilities are still pretty glaring. Yes, and they've been amplified right through maintaining low inventories to keep costs down, through so-called just-in-time production, right? And so after talking about containerization for several chapters, which might be sort of a downer in terms of thinking about worker power, the final chapter of my book um, talks about how in the late 20th century, post-containerization, right, containers are on in the San Francisco Bay Area and in Durban, right, there is actually um, examples, multiple examples, of dock workers refusing to work cargo, um, boycotting cargo to express political opinions, to exert political pressure on international, um, uh, for international causes. So repeatedly, San Francisco dock workers refused to work cargo from South Africa in order to protest apartheid, mm. uh, most famously in 1984, where for 10 days they don't touch South African cargo um, during um, the uh, global anti-apartheid movement. But it's a rare example when workers stop work, right? Um, and I like to always point out, it's one thing to protest something, and that's great. Um, but these people actually are essentially not getting paid in the, in, when they protest. Right. right? Um, and so they're taking an economic hit to fight for the black freedom in South Africa, people they've never met. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, mm-hmm. And in Durban in 2008, where dock workers refused to unload military supplies from China that were going to neighboring Zimbabwe, which was landlocked, um, and Durban doctors are saying, these bullets are going to kill our fellow workers in Zimbabwe. Right. Um, And so what we have are examples of international or transnational solidarity um, in this choke point. Right. Um, Where workers are saying, even though I've got a contract, I refuse to work this cargo because I I have a political agenda. Right. Um, And even as you may know, just this summer. Right. Um, Dock workers in France and in Italy refuse to load military supplies aboard a Saudi ship because of this ongoing Saudi war in Yemen. Right. Um, And so. Um, not all workers have the same amount of power, not only dock workers, others in logistics do, um, but we have even to the very minute, right, um, examples of dock workers occasionally, not all the time, right, um, actually trying to use their power on behalf of freedom struggles um, in other parts of the world. Um, and so it clearly suggests, right, um, that dock workers specifically and more generally maybe workers have some real power despite their weakened state. This is Interchange on WFHB. Our guest is Peter Cole. He's joined us to talk about labor power on the docks and as an incursion into capital commodity flows. We're going to turn now to a public incursion into our collective memories. Peter Cole is the founding director of the Chicago Race Riot of 1919 commemorative project. This race riot, a term we'll explore, was an explosion of racially motivated violence where whites rioted against blacks, leaving 38 people dead. 23 black, 15 white, and 537 injured. The worst incident of racial violence in Chicago's history, it remains largely forgotten. And it's this that the CRR 19 seeks to correct. I am the founding director of the Chicago Race Riot of 1919 Commemoration Project. Um, 100 years ago this year in Chicago was the worst incident of racial violence in the city's history. And it contributed to the expansion and hardening of residential segregation in the city that literally to this day, the city continues to suffer from notoriously. Um, And even though this event is super important, it's long forgotten um, or perhaps was never intended to be remembered. And so 
perhaps surprisingly, but using a model from Germany, um, where in Germany in recent decades they've done, in my opinion, a much better job of grappling with the history of the Holocaust. Um, I have, uh, was deeply impressed with a project there called Stoppersteine, which in English means stumbling stones, so that now in Berlin and many other cities in Germany and across Europe, there are these small brass plaques located outside of the last known residence of Holocaust victims, so that when you're walking down the streets of Berlin or Hamburg, you'll come across these reminders of uh, essentially that the Holocaust happened here. And um, what began as 20 in the mid-90s in Berlin, now there's almost 75,000 across 24 countries in Europe. And we want to locate essentially 38 artistic markers that will be similar but different than the originals um, at the locations where the 38 people were killed in July and August of 1919 to um, commemorate these events and um, teach us that the past and the present are connected and shape our city here. But, of course, the story of... The Chicago race riot is essentially a microcosm of the story of America. What is it meant by uh, a race riot, Peter? Uh, tell, tell a little bit about that period, if you don't mind. Of course. Race riot is actually a term that really needs to be unpacked because it means different things in different times and to different people. Um, but in 1919 and before that and actually into the 1960s, when people use that term in the U.S., it usually meant... Um, random mobs of white people killing um, black people because of prejudice or racism. Um, in 1919, uh, a 17-year-old black male was killed for swimming in Lake Michigan into a so-called white part of the lake. And when white police officers refused to arrest the white man accused of doing that crime, um, it basically sparked existing tensions across the city um, into violence. And so, uh, so after this first kid was killed, then that same night, um, literally gangs of young white men invaded the, the predominantly black neighborhood nearby and um, escalated, right? And so that's why this became known as a race riot. Hmm. Um, and in that same summer, there was about two dozen so-called race riots across the country, which is why it's nicknamed the Red Summer of mm -hmm. 1918. Um, you know, and before and after that, that term was widely used. But starting in the 1960s, the terms often was uh, associated with um, black people, gangs or groups of black people who were angry about often the same subject, racism, um, but who, say, committed arson and the like. So in the, subsequently, the term, the same term comes to mean actually something quite different um, uh, than what it had been used for for actually over 100 years. A so race riot traditionally meant basically um, white rage against black people for um, being black. Um, and then in the eyes of many white people, race riot came to mean from the 60s onward um, something quite different. Yes, involving race and yes, involving group violence, but not necessarily murder and not necessarily unjustified. I mean... In the case of Watts in 1965, um, it was sort of police um, brutality and uh, was sort of the spark, right, um, as opposed to blacks being sort of anti-white per se. Mm -hmm. Not dissimilar to the Ferguson situation in, in, in terms of uh, an injustice causing uh, people to basically, you know, take to the streets and, and express themselves in, in a way that um, we now call... Uh, a race riot, um, and again, as you say, uh, exposing the idea that the you know white people see uh, black people being violent. 
And yeah. yeah, and Ferguson is the right example for modern times. I mean, after a white police officer kills an unarmed black man, there's actually months of peaceful protests, but after a while, sort of blacks in Ferguson become increasingly um, upset at the lack of really acknowledgement of the, the crime, mm. and then sort of, yeah, gather together and sort of burn some things. Um, but that becomes known as a race riot. Right. Um, um, but uh, very different, even though we use the same term, in 1919, or for that matter, say 1921, when 300 black people were killed in Tulsa, mm. um, or 1917, like you said, in East St. Louis, when approximately 50 black people were killed um, there, um, or in Springfield, Illinois, for that matter, where in 1908, two black people were killed, um, which resulted in the creation of the NAACP. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. And so... Yeah, that term riot is a tricky one. Race riot, that is. Yeah, and what you note, again, I think you you make an important distinction here is the the way in which um, the violence is um, on physical bodies generally when it comes to the riots you speak of in Chicago, East St. Louis, uh, Springfield, uh, physical violence visited on black bodies by white people and the difference between protest that becomes violent it becomes violent more in terms of property destruction um and and that's a real distinction right um violence yes but like burning a building is quite different than killing a human being that's our show we'll close with change it composed by and featuring the multi-instrumentalist buddy colette This version is from the original Chico Hamilton Quintet, live at the Strollers, recorded in 1955. Thanks to Peter Cole for joining us to discuss very important periods of labor history and sites of radical activism that might illuminate particular strategic paths to be taken in future struggles against the lords of capital and globalization. Again, Cole's book is Dock Worker Power, Race and Activism in Durban and the San Francisco Bay Area, published by the University of Illinois Press. Thanks for listening. I'm Doug Storm. I produce Interchange. Kyrie Greenberg is our executive producer. Stay tuned for the Jazz Menagerie, coming up next on your community radio station, WFHB. WFHB.